parents' room next door that you can escort them to as well. So glad to have you here this morning. We've got our artists around the room, and at the end of the morning, we're going to be asking them about the images that they're creating and how that relates to this whole concept of prayer, conversation with God. And uh, over the next eight weeks, what I'd like to do is unpack this theme uh, for us as a community of people so we can discover more about the breadth and the depth and the height of prayer. It seems that God has wired into the psyche of human beings this desire to pray. In fact, it seems that prayer, conversation with God, is like the one spiritual practice in the life of a Jesus follower that seems to be able to connect earth with heaven. It's the single most powerful spiritual practice, if you like, that seems to be able to enable human beings made in God's image to access the very power of heaven. In fact, you don't have to be a religious person to pray. There was a survey undertaken in 2013 of a number of people from the UK, and they asked them about prayer. And what they discovered was whether they were religious people or irreligious people, that six out of seven people said, we pray. We're either open to prayer or we pray in a routine kind of way. In fact, I heard the very words come from one of our celebrated athletes in Australia, whose name is Debbie Flintoff. She won gold in the Olympic Games in Seoul uh, in Korea many years ago. And I remember her being interviewed by Tim Lane, a famous sportscaster and interviewer, um, about her experience building up to the Olympic Games. It's curious because she said words like this. She said, Tim, I'd come across a time in my life when I was preparing for all of the Olympic Games and I was overseas. A certain tragedy had happened in our family and I took sick in the Olympic Village. And she said these words. She said, Tim, I'm not a religious person. But I found myself praying. Said, I, I just said, God, there's been a whole bunch of different things happening in my life. And I'd just be also appreciative if, if you could just kind of clear the way over the next few weeks. She said, I'm not a religious person, but I found myself praying. It seems as though prayer is wired into the human psyche whether you're close to God, far away from God, whether you identify in a formal sense or not. It seems as though prayer is wired into the human psyche. People pray. And over the next eight weeks, what I'd love to do is take us on a journey of prayer. Such that if you start off here in your level of prayer, that you might go to here. My prayer and vision for NCR is that we might be able to shift a culture here such that praying and conversation with God becomes as simple and as profound as, as eating and breathing. I, I pray that some of you will discover a, a gift that you have in prayer that you might be able to use in a more profound way. Perhaps some of you are here this morning and, and the idea of prayer and that kind of gifting and wiring for you is set to the side. What I'd love it to do is to be reignited. Some of you are going to stand in the gap and be someone who is fervently praying on behalf of other people. Whilst my desire for all of us here, whether you are far away from God or whether you are close is that prayer would be something that would be ignited in your life in a fresh and a new and a real way, whether you're close to or far away. So let me ask you this morning, do you pray? If you do, how do you pray? 
When do you pray? What do you pray for? And how would you rate your prayer life? Usually when I ask people those kinds of questions, there's a whole bunch of mumbling and scratching around the floor and a feeling of guilt. And that's because I think for most people, prayer has, falls into so this category of a list of acquired things that you need to ask for. And so the first pushback usually in people's lives are, Troy, are you kidding me? Uh, that's just one more thing that I have to fit into my busy schedule. That's one more thing I have to fit into my busy life. Do you really expect me on top of all of the other things to do is to pray as well? It's as though we have this image of prayer as being this never-ending grocery list, this shopping list of things to ask of God. If there's two factors that usually inhibit people or shape people most profoundly in their understanding or perhaps inhibiting them in prayer, firstly, it's got to do with how they perceive prayer. And the second thing it's got to do with is how we picture God. When I grew up, I heard people praying. I went to a school where there were some chaplains and they prayed. I went to churches, which I heard ministers and people pray. I remember we would come home to dinner and my grandfather would sit at the table on a Sunday afternoon and he would say grace, he would pray, he would thank God for food. I grew up hearing about prayer. I also, when I grew up, I realized that I not only heard prayer, but I saw people praying. I would sometimes occasionally come out of my room in the morning time, either into the lounge room or into my parents' bedroom, and I would occasionally see my father praying, kneeling down beside his bed, praying. I would observe people praying. And lastly, as I grew up, I practiced prayer, if you like. It was kind of scratchy and kind of irregular, but I remember as a young little boy, uh, staring up into the sky and, and kind of asking questions, you know, in my bed going, how does all this work, God, if you're up there? I remember as a year seven, uh, sorry, a seven-year-old boy, my, my mother coming into my room and us talking about prayer and I was kind of anxious about if, if something happened to me and if I die, where I would go. And just to make sure uh, I wanted to have that assurance, I remember one of my first prayers was inviting Jesus into my life so that I could be confident that I knew where I would go if something happened to me as a young child. And then there was this long kind of intermittent between the next kind of praying, which maybe had to do more with what circumstances were involving themselves in my lives and me kind of making requests to God. I remember the first time I ever had to pray aloud. I was in my late teenage years and uh, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this before, but the very first time praying out aloud was like sweating bullets for me. I remember you were in a circle and you'd go around and the next person and the next person. And all you thought about was my turn's coming up and I have no idea what to say. And the person next to me, they would inevitably play, pray this awesome prayer, you know, with these big long words and you felt so inadequate in praying and so by the time it got to you you would mumble and spit out these words and then for the rest of the time that the prayer circle went on you would spend analyzing the terrible deplorable prayer that you just prayed but then from that time over the years I've discovered that prayer is more vast than than just a checklist if you like with God 
In fact, there's been times in my life through the dryness and, and through the flourishing of time with God, I found my, myself asking for God for guidance. God, where should I work? What should I do? Who should I marry? Got that one right. <laughs> I remember there's times in which I've sat with people and prayed for them in times of grief for God's comfort to be in their life. I know of times where I've spoken to God and confessed things that are wrong in my own life and asked for his cleansing power to be at work in me. There's been other times in my life where, where, where I've sought God for answers, for healing in people's lives or for guidance in other people's lives and seen responses to those prayers. If you like, prayer for me has become something more broad and vast than just a checklist. But because we're starting today with this whole idea of prayer, what I thought we'd do in our time remaining is begin, if you like, at the foundational level of what prayer is about. And that is prayer to do with asking. Asking God. Because for me... The two reasons why I think people are more reluctant, if you like, to pray or feel like it's a busy schedule is not only because prayer can seem like a shopping list that's just endless, like Bruce Almighty just experienced himself when he was trying to order prayers and stand in the feet of God, was also because of the image and the picture I had of God when I was growing up. And to unpack that this morning... We're going to explore two stories that Jesus told about the picture and the image of God that we should have, if you like, when it comes to framing up our understanding of prayer as asking. So if you want to follow us this morning, uh, if you have a Bible or an iOS device, you can look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 to 8, and you can track with me. But this is how the story goes that frames up a picture about asking that has everything to do with the person you're asking of. That is the image and the picture you might have of God. This is how the insight and the picture rolls. Jesus told them a parable about how they should pray, how they should always pray and not give up. You see, even in Jesus' estimation, he understood that followers of his would hit certain times in their life where there's a dryness or a distraction or a heaviness with standing out and being a follower of his, where it seems like it's out of joint with the world that they would feel like, at times, giving up. So Jesus told them a story about how they should always pray and not give up. And this is how it goes. There was once a judge in a certain town, and this judge, it said he didn't fear God and didn't have any respect for people. Now, I wonder who in this room might fit that picture most accurately. A judge-like person who didn't fear God and just doesn't respect people. Are you here, Phil Walker? Why don't you come down the front here for a second, mate? Maybe you could be the person that could be that person. Why don't you put your hands together for Phil? Oh, come on. It's just got a little bit heavy here. All right. 
Everyone's thinking, they're going to pick me. Don't pick me. I so respect you, Phil. All right, now you can just sit here for a second, mate. There was once a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God and didn't have any respect for people. So we have to dress you up like a judge. So we have an official. Thank you, Andy Waters. We have an official horsehair judge's hat wig for you. And we have this particular robe, just like that. Now, does he look like a judge? Kids, does he look like a judge? You can put your arms in here if you like to. You can just, that's all fantastic. And this one over here as well. This is a perfect picture of what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about someone like Phil, dressed just like this, only a couple of thousand years later. There was once a certain judge in a certain town who didn't fear God and didn't have any respect for people. Is that true? Very true. Very true. And it also says there was once a widow in that town and she came to him and said, judge my case, vindicate me against my enemy. You see, there was this widow in a town and in that culture, in that day and age, if you did not have any other advocate, if you are a widowed woman with no other family members to advocate for you, it was a very scary place to be. And this widow, this woman, it says, only had two things on her side. She had a conviction that she was in the right And she had a courageous voice that she used. And she brought those two things to a judge. Because someone was, if you like, taking advantage of her. And the only place she could go, the only advocate she could find to judge for her case correctly was this judge. Are you a good judge? I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is how the story goes. For a long time, he refused So the woman would come to him and say, vindicate me, help me. Will you help me, judge? Uh, No, I have no respect for anybody. Judge, please, I have no one else to help me. I'm a widowed woman and I have only two things, a conviction that I'm in the right and have a a courageous voice to come and ask you, will you you vindicate me, will you help me, judge? Uh, There's a small widow opportunity there. Um, I I just... (laughs) All I want you to do is please, will you please help me? No, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. (sighs) So the story goes, for a long, long time, he refused. But then it shifts. It says, in the end, he said to himself, it's true that I don't fear God and I don't have any respect for people. But because this widow is causing me a lot of trouble, one of the versions says, because she is persisting and There's a word I'm reluctant to use, but it starts with N, and it's like a horse, and and it's an old horse, and and it's causing me so much trouble. I will put her case right and vindicate her so that she doesn't end up coming and giving me literally a black eye. Judge, will you judge for me? Uh, Based on this, yes, because I don't want you to punch me. Well, (laughs) apparently, the image she had is... If she didn't, what would happen is that this judge would get a really nice black eye. Now, hang on. Now, yesterday afternoon, when you texted me and said, can you help me? You don't need to know anything else. Just rock up. I didn't know you were going to draw my face. <laughs> Trust me, it doesn't get any worse than this. Sure. <laughs> 
Because he was so concerned that this woman would come and in her persistence and in her courageous voice and in her certainty of being in the right would end up giving him a black eye, he rescinded. And eventually, he actually acted in her case. And this is what he said. Well, said Jesus, did you hear what this unjust judge says? And then he pauses. Because it's a picture of God and about prayer and about asking that he wants to impress upon those who are listening. And don't you think that God will see justice done for those who follow him, his chosen ones, who shout out to him day and night? Jesus was impressing upon them that this woman who was coming to an unjust judge in the end, got what she needed because she persisted and was courageous and she called out. And then he does the contrast. But there is a God, if you like, who dwells in the heavens, who knows you, who will answer you, who will hear your cries, your persistent calling out because he is not like Phil. Sorry, the unjust judge. He's different too. He's like someone who cares. Do you suppose he will deliberately delay? Let me tell you. He will vindicate you quickly. It happened in the context of Jesus just 30 years later in AD 70. And he says one day it'll happen at the end of time when he calls all people to account for who they've believed and what they've done and how they've lived and who they've followed. But in the meantime, he encourages Be persistent. Be courageous. Because the picture of God that you need to have formed squarely in your mind is someone who is not like this. You don't have to blacken an eye. The picture of God is vitally different. Thanks, Phil. You can go now. (laughs) If anyone has any uh, makeup remover, if you could just pass that along to Phil, that would be... Awesome, because he can leave two things, but he takes away one (laughs) with him. I want to show you this picture. (laughs) Vindicated, vindicated. I love these family-friendly mornings, I tell you. When all the kids are in, just love these mornings. Just really like them. I want to show you this image of this particular man. This man's called Andrew Twiggy Forrest. And he was being interviewed about three weeks ago um, across all the news networks. This man has been, uh, he has done the biggest give in the history of, of corporate Australia. Just in the last few weeks, he has given $400 million away. And he was being asked... He was being asked on the 7.30 report why he was doing it. Lee Sales looked to him and said, uh, Andrew Twiggy, that's his nickname, Forrest, who is the, the CEO of Fortescue Metals. He's the owner of it. It's worth $5.5 billion. And uh, she asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, he said, it's because I can. <laughs> and I was sitting there on the couch and just watching the glimmer in his eye. And he kind of had this this 
this twiggy smile on his face. And I, thought, I turned to one of my kids and I said, no, no, there's more going on here. There is more going on to this story. So I began to Google. And what I discovered about Andrew Twiggy Forrest, one of the, the, richest, one of the richest people in the world, who's, who's made a commitment with his wife to, by the time he dies, to give away pretty much most of his vast fortune. In fact, he said, from a young age, when I started earning money, I've, I bought into generosity. That's one of our values here. He said, I began to give and give. He said, I had an unsustainable business model. He said, I would borrow money to give it. <laughs> he said that was unsustainable. And, and, and then the iron ore prices went up and up and up and up and up. Anyway, I, I delved into this man's story. And I discovered that he's a God follower. He's a follower of Jesus. Something about the way his eyes shine, it just seemed to be a life there. And I could see it. And so as I dug a little bit deeper, I discovered that there was a time in Andrew Twiggy Forrest's life where he made an ask of God, and he was nine years old. The story goes like this. As a nine-year-old, he was out on the property, the rural property of his parents, and he got on a motorbike, and he just started to ride it and ride it and ride it and ride it, all the way out into the sticks. He said, I stopped, and as a nine-year-old, I did this foolish, silly thing. I stopped on my bike, I hopped off it. He's told this story, it's been reported, and he said, I took the keys to my bike, miles away from home, I turned my back on the spinifex and the sand dunes behind me, he says, I got the keys and I threw them behind my back, just to toss them into the spinifex, to see as a nine-year-old if I could go hunt and find them. (laughs) So he said, I spent the next three to four hours looking everywhere in those sand dunes, I looked amongst all the spin effects, just as a nine year Why did he do that? Don't know why. Just looked and looked and looked, hunted and hunted and hunted and couldn't find them. This is his story. He said at the end of three to four hours of exhaustive hunting, I tried something I'd never tried before. He said as a nine-year-old, I paused and I prayed. He said, God, can you help me find the keys? He said, when I opened my eyes, I looked down and there they were, sitting between the carburetor on my bike and the fuel hose. (laughs) He said, there is no way on earth those keys could have been there because I threw them over my shoulder into the sand dunes. And he said, from that day on, he has not had to question God. He had a framed picture, if you like, in his head. There's a God up there who's not like an unjust judge, my words now. But he's more like a God. He said, I just felt God was messing with me and playing with me at that moment. He said, okay, God, you don't have to prove anything else. And said, from that day on, he's often caught between air flights or business meetings, opening up his Bible and reading and praying. And that's his story. A picture of ask. So Jesus told a second story. It wasn't about an unjust judge with a black eye but a very different one. And it goes like this. Jesus said about prayer, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Now I know adults, as soon as you're hearing these words, you're asking a whole bunch of other questions right now, aren't you? You're going, but what if? And that and this and that. We'll cover those things over the next eight weeks. But could you just pause for a moment, adults? And become a little bit more childlike for a moment. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, everyone, anyone who asks, receives. Everyone who searches, finds. Everyone who knocks will have the door opened to them. And then he goes on and says this. Because you could imagine the people muddling and fuddling in their mind about, wait a second, what kind of image do we have of God here? And does he really? And is he interested? And will he listen to me? Will he hear me? What kind of picture do I have of God? He says, don't you see? Supposing your son, and he frames it up differently, he now talks about a father. Supposing your son asks for bread, well, which of you is going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, which of you is going to give him a serpent or a snake or maybe some of the bait they would use to catch the fish? Which of you would do something like that? Oliver, Ollie, come on up here for a second. Right up here. He likens it, if you like, to the two most staple diets in Palestine, bread and fish and a father. He says, which of you, if it has a son who asks for bread, could you ask me for bread? Can I have bread? Yes, you can. There it is. Son. Could you ask me for a fish? Can I have a fish? Sure you can. Here you go. <laughs> you can just hold that for me for a second. No. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? Which of you? None. Which of you, if your kids ask you for fish, the other staple died in Palestine, you ask me for fish? No. <laughs> would give him a python snake to eat. Which would you prefer? These ones. Okay. Bear with me just for a little bit and then you might be able to have one. <laughs> he said, which of you dads would do that? No, no. If I ask for bread, give him bread. If I ask for fish, this one smells bad. <laughs> we'll give anything more. You see, he frames up a picture. Now, I know here in this room, for some of us, that picture is not a good one. But I don't want to leave it by the side. I want to press it and say, if you had a dad that did the opposite, who did the stone and the snake, there is a heavenly father dad who's profoundly compassionate and just and kind and gracious. That's the image he wants us to have when it comes to ask. You've done very well, Ollie. Yay. Here's one. You can take one for the friend next to you. I know him. And at the end, there might be some others for others. Put your hands together for Ollie. Oh, you don't want the bread or the stone? No. Okay, all right. You can have those. Jesus goes on and says this. Well then, if you know how to give good gifts... Even though in relative speaking terms, you compared to God are evil. How much more? How much more? 
Will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Band's going to come up and just quietly play for a moment. Those who ask him. So let me ask you again. Do you pray? How do you pray? When do you pray? How is your prayer? Because it seems to me at the beginning of this series on prayer, the most profound thing that shapes my response to prayer is the image I have of God. What is that image? Many, many years ago at Christmas time, I, I grew up with three other brothers. And uh, it was Christmas time, and there was this order in the family of you got certain presents at certain times. And so my brothers became of age for them to get a bike. And it wasn't just a normal bike. It was like the Malvern Star with, you know, the, the, the racing one with the, the, the seat that kind of curved like this. You could roll back in. Remember those? And they got a bike each, twins. And uh, I didn't. And our usual tradition in our family was that once you'd open up the presents, you'd go out into the court where we lived and every kid in town would be parading their gifts. Like It was like brag city time. Yeah, This is what I got, this is what I got, this is what I got. And my brothers rode around that court with some of the other kids who got bikes, like sitting up there like Prissy Andrews thinking they were in the bit, you know. I don't even remember what I got for my present. But all I remember is standing there looking at those bikes filled with envy and jealousy. I think I dropped my present and pushed them off their bike. Petulant young kid who didn't know better. If you had have asked me at that time, what's your picture of your parents like? I would have said, they're bad. They don't love me. They don't care for me. They don't like me. Didn't get the present I wanted. As I've grown up, my image has shifted. They love me. They wouldn't have withheld that from me unless they had the right picture and image in mind. But as I've learned over the years, when things are hard and things are tough, when seasons are dry, when seasons are flourishing, I need to keep coming back to this image, this picture. God is like a good, heavenly parent, a father, a mother who delights. So without asking any more this morning, Without saying any more this morning, I just want you to sit with this image of God. It's the kind of person who delights to hear people made in his image call out to him and inquire and ask. That's the image I want us to sit with for the entire eight weeks. And this is my desires for the the whole eight weeks, I'm just going to name them here for you right now. 
What if God wants to work in us so that he can better shine his life through us to change the world? That happens through prayer. I want people to be activated to pray like they've never prayed before. I want to shift the culture around here at NCR where we want to inject it with courage and faith even more so. Deeper intimacy and proximity with God. And share stories as part of the everyday conversation of when we've asked of things, we've seen God at work. That's what I pray for and hope for. Over the next eight weeks. So wherever you are right now, I just want to ask you, what's your picture and your image of God? As they sing, as Cindy sings, why don't you just allow these words to roll over you? And just near the end, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond and begin that shift in culture, life today. Thanks, Cindy.